0: So um, I actually want to start off by showing you a picture. So what you see in your screen, hopefully you're not grossed out by this. I don't think it's too gross. It's a chameleon, okay? I find chameleons to be very, very fascinating because, as you know, um, they can change the color of their skin to blend into a certain background. Um, It's really amazing because uh, they have these this ability to change the pigment of their skin. And because of that, they can create natural camouflages to blend into whatever surrounding background. So this is green, right? We see kind of like the green pigments uh, from the skin. Um, This is very amazing because this is not like a learned trait, but this is a natural trait. And chameleons, they use this as a defense mechanism against predators, right? If they're feeling danger, if they feel like they're uh, being hunted or... Um, attacked by a different animal, um, they would just blend in. Now, in psychology, there's a thing called the chameleon effect. And um, this is where in social settings or in conversations, um, the chameleon effect is really uh, a practice that uh, you mimic or mirror someone else's gesture or expressions or um, their posture, their vocal pitch or their tone. So just as a chameleon mimics or blends into a background, uh, the chameleon effect is pretty much um, imitating, mimicking um, someone we're talking with. Now, um, I do this to annoy my friends, right? If they're saying, like, what's wrong with you? i will be like, what's wrong with you, right? Uh, it's not, that's not the chameleon effect, but rather it's more kind of like if you're in a job interview, right? You see the person crossing their legs, right? You see kind of like their elbow on the table or whatever. You would copy that. And usually a lot of this is subconscious. We're not really thinking about it. But as we engage in dialogue, our voice starts to sound like their voice, right? Our, our tone, our register, and the way in how we pronounce words and talk. Um, and there's many articles that say that mimicking, right, this chameleon effect actually helps others to like you and trust you more. I read that, I was like, that's so fascinating, right? And um, so people in sales, um, negotiators, professional networkers, they would use mirroring to engage in conversations, to get to know the other individual better, and to eventually win them over. I found this very fascinating, and I thought about this, and interestingly enough, I believe that a lot of discipleship is mirroring. When Jesus said, follow me to his disciples, he didn't just mean, hey, wherever I go, you go with me. Travel wherever I go. It meant to mirror his teachings, his actions. That's what it means to follow Christ. You know, when Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, imitate me as I imitate Christ, that is mirroring. Right? As Paul follows the teachings and the examples of Christ— what he wants his readers to do is to f- follow um, in suit as well. Now, we're going to be continuing our series in Philippians, and today we're going to be looking at what gospel mirroring looks like. So I'm going to read this passage from us. This comes from Philippians chapter 2, verse 19 through 30. We're going to read it um, as a whole. This is God's word, and it says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Let's read on. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my needs. For he has been longing for you all, and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow." Verse 28, I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now, that is the word of God for today. And this is kind of interesting because all throughout the letter of Philippians, we see that Paul is essentially giving a teaching, right? He, he's teaching Christ. And in this section, Paul kind of takes a break from his normal teaching, and he kind of goes into logistics. So if you remember, Paul, as he's writing this letter to the Philippians, he's still in prison, and he says, you know, I hope I can send Timothy to you. Ideally, Paul himself, he would want to visit the Philippians, but he can't because he's under house arrest. So he wants to send Timothy, his right-hand man, to check the progress as a church. Now, out of everyone that Paul can send, you know, you can surely imagine that Paul has networks upon networks of many talented and faithful disciples. Why does Paul send Timothy? You know, why Timothy out of everyone? Well, in our passage, it says that Paul is extremely confident of Timothy's character. Verse 20 says, Timothy is concerned for your welfare. And the verb that's being used here as concern can also be translated as being anxious. And this is the same verb that Matthew records Jesus saying on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. It's the same verb. So in other words, what Paul is saying about Timothy is this. Timothy is anxious for you. Now, you know who was anxious this past week? Laker fans were anxious for the Lakers throughout the Western Conference Final. Why? Because we care about the Lakers and we know what's at stake. And thankfully, we won the series, right? I don't want to talk too much about this. Um, But the point that I'm trying to make is that um, this anxiousness comes out of a care for uh, the other individual. On a deeper interpersonal level, Paul is saying to the church at Philippi, Timothy genuinely cares about you. He's anxious for you. If we look at Paul's writings... Paul is not afraid to call people out. Paul's definitely not a people pleaser, and he's going to speak his mind, obviously, in love. But at the same time, Paul isn't afraid to commend or to affirm or even to encourage others. It's very easy to view Paul as this cold, complex, heady theologian, but Paul is actually very animated when it comes to expressing his feelings. He's very expressive in showing his heart. I mean, just read First Thessalonians, right? He has this closely um, tight-knitted bond with the Thessalonians, with the, the church in Thessalonica, and um, he really pours out his heart, right? There's a lot of mentioning of longing to see them, right? Now, Paul, in this passage, he gives probably one of the greatest encouragements and praise he can give to a person. You know what he says here? Paul is saying, Timothy is one of the most selfless guys I know. Wow. You know, you know what that's like? It, it, imagine for me, for my, my, my scenario, it's like Stevie Wonder coming up to me and saying, Randy, I think you're an amazing piano player. Right? I just followed you on any chord. And it's one thing if someone who doesn't know much about playing the piano say that, oh, you're really good at piano. Right? I mean, I'll receive the encouragement. You know, I take it. Gladly. But it's another thing to have my greatest musical hero right, my inspiration, affirm my skills at the very same instrument that he's mastered through decades. Now, for Paul to say, Timothy is selfless, that has a lot of meaning because Paul is one of the biblical heroes when it comes to selflessness. And Paul, he continues to describe uh, Timothy. Verse 22 says, you know his proven worth. You've seen the actions that back up his character, now, as he goes on into the passage, Paul also wants to send back Epaphroditus. Now, Epaphroditus is a messenger who actually, who actually belonged to the church at Philippi. So he was a member of the church, and he was sent by the church to deliver um, some monetary gift to Paul, as we find out later in chapter four. Now, in those days in the first century, obviously, they didn't have checks. Uh, they didn't have Venmo to provide support for missions, right? It's so easy to give nowadays, right? We can give electronically. But in those times, um, if people had to give um, offering or gifts um, internationally, right? Uh, traveling long distances, they will send messengers or emissaries to deliver the gifts. So for Epaphroditus, he would actually have to carry the cash by himself and protect it during however long he would have to travel, whether if it's weeks or months. But something happened. Our passage tells us that he got really sick. Now, we don't know exactly when he got sick. Maybe it was a sickness that he had for his entire life. Maybe he got sick during travel. Maybe he got sick right when he landed in Rome. We don't know. We don't even know what type of sickness he, uh, he had. All we know is that it was really bad and that he almost died. Thankfully, and Paul says according to God's mercy, he, he recovered and he is ready to go home. And so Paul, um, as he compliments Timothy, he's, he's going to move on to Epaphroditus and he's going to compliment him. And Paul says this about him. Paul says, this guy is my brother. He's my fellow worker. He's my fellow soldier. He's your messenger. He's a minister to my need. And Paul, he compliments Epaphroditus for having a servant heart. And one key detail that he gives to us is that Epaphroditus risked his life to complete a mission for Christ. And he continues on in verse twenty-six that um, Epaphroditus has a longing to be back with his people, to be back with the Philippians, and this is kind of not because he felt endangered, but um, he wanted to be back home because his attention was on the people back home. Because and it wasn't really not on his health, because he felt bad that people back at home would worry too much. So he would want to. He had this desire to go back and to show himself. Now, what do both Timothy and Epaphroditus have in common in this passage? All right, what is the common thread between them two? Well, Paul is using both Timothy and Epaphroditus to show a clear example of Christ-like selflessness. In other words, I think what Paul is trying to say in this passage using real-life human examples is this. Timothy and Epaphroditus, they mirror Christ. Christ. One scholar says this about this passage. Timothy has unselfishly served in the gospel, showing a genuine concern for the Philippians. Epaphroditus' devotion to his commission in the service of Christ was almost at the expense of his own life. All these display the unselfconscious care for others, enjoined at the beginning of the chapter, chapter 2, and reinforced by the powerful example of Christ's self Emptying. Now, I want to explain this. Typically, in Paul's letter, he will talk about logistics towards the end. But there's a reason why I think Paul is actually talking about Timothy and Epaphroditus in this section of the letter, like right in the middle of the book. So, this is his train of thought. After showing how Christ emptied himself by being a humble, selfless servant earlier in the chapter, Paul brings up Timothy and Epaphroditus a little later saying that, hey, remember when I said do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit? But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves? Remember when I said, don't only look out for your own self-interest, but also look out for the interest of others? Paul is saying, if you want real-life examples of what that looks like, look to Jesus who emptied himself as a servant. Look to Timothy, who was so concerned about your well-being. Look to Epaphroditus, who risked his own life for the cause of the gospel. Now, what does this mean for us? I want to focus on verse 21. This is the passage here from Philippians 2, verse 21. It says this, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Christ. Now, this is really what's key for us to examine in our passage. I believe that we live in a world that is rooted in self-interest. If I may be honest, I think this is the greatest struggle for the American church. We are battling self-interest, and with, um, you know, the cause of Christ. The reason why I think this is just my opinion. Discipleship is struggling here in America is because we have greater priorities that is rooted in self interest than to actually, or than in wanting to actually make disciples. Even myself, I have to be honest with you, church, I struggle with this because there's a lot of things that I want to do selfishly. Um, I am a man of self interest as well. And, you know, there's many things that I want to do. There's many things I want to buy. There's many things I want to see and experience, which comes out of my selfish desire. And um, this is just kind of the tension that we wrestle with, right? We live in a world that celebrates selfishness. And I find myself fighting um, between um, my selfish desires and, you know, the call of the gospel, which is really about selflessness, I want to talk about uh, this TED Talk that I saw recently. Um, this, so this is the title, okay? Self-interest is the key for collective action. Or, yeah, collective action. And um, this is very interesting because I saw this title and I was like, oh, this is such a, all right, let's see. I want to see where she's going with this. So um, the, the lady that's giving this TED Talk, her name is Marcella Navarro, and she runs this company called Project X. Okay, um, their company is pretty much all about sustainability. Okay, um, their mission is to actually transform ten industries in ten years by making them more sustainable and environmentally friendly. So, uh, just like every other great TED Talk we see, right? The speaker um, usually starts off with a very interesting hook. So this is her hook. This is how she starts off her talk. She says this. I believe that selfishness can save the planet. I heard that, and I'm like, what? (laughs) What did you just say? Huh? So I was like, okay, this is going to get really interesting. So I watched the video, and this is pretty much her argument. Okay, She says that one unsustainable dollar can be turned into one sustainable dollar out of pure selfishness. And she gives specific examples of sustainable alternatives such as the Impossible Burger, right? If you don't know what the Impossible Burger is, it's pretty much a vegan burger that actually, supposedly, I haven't tried it yet, tastes like the real thing. It tastes like meat, beef. Um, But how they make the Impossible Burger is extremely eco-friendly, right? And um, she was just talking, she was using that as an example. The next thing she brings up is um, the Patagonia jacket and how Patagonia is very... uh, Eco-friendly and sustainable as well, and she pretty much she pretty much asked this question: um, How do we do this? Well, give buyers what they want, let them be selfish, let them purchase not what they need, but what they want. Now, here's the problem, though. I'm selfish, okay? I confess that, and out of my selfishness, I prefer to eat a double double over the Impossible Burger. I'm sorry, I'm not going to go vegan, right? Um, No disrespect to those of you who are vegan, right? I've actually had great vegan food in New York. But that's the thing. Here's another problem. She says this in her video. This is her quote. Harnessing the power of selfishness can save the planet, right? So she's just repeating like her hook. You know, that doesn't work because the eco-terrorist will say, harnessing the power of selfishness will destroy the planet, you know? (laughs) And... I, the reason why I'm sharing you know, her TED Talk is this kind of exposes the narrative of the world. The world preaches and teaches to us that not only is it okay to be selfish, not only is it natural to be selfish, but being selfish is good for our society. Being selfish is even good for our planet. And all I see really, and not not only in... Just this TED talk, but um, on Twitter or just like all over social media, is that the world justifies selfishness. The secular world proclaims a gospel message of preserving self interest. Especially in America, life is about you, your freedom, your happiness, your rights. And all of this emphasis on you, you, especially in consumer culture, this causes us to really believe and to step in to selfish values. And not only that, it becomes so natural and so ingrained into our hearts. But when we look at what Christ proclaims, Jesus proclaims the gospel of self-sacrifice. Jesus preaches that the way to salvation is not to make yourself better. The way to salvation is not about um, being moral or doing things a specific way. The way to salvation is believing the fact that me, God in flesh, has sacrificed my entire life for you. The call of the gospel has always been self-sacrifice. The sacrifice of my preference for yours the sacrifice of my freedom for yours, the sacrifice of my life for yours. That is what the gospel calls us to do. And it's completely at odds against what the world teaches. Paul wants his readers to follow in the footsteps of both Timothy and Epaphroditus that mirror the selflessness of Christ. Now, church, I want to leave you with a couple applications. Um, these two applications are going to deal with prayer, okay? So number one, pray for God to reveal the ways in how we prioritize ourselves over his kingdom. Pray for God to reveal the ways in how we prioritize ourselves over the kingdom. Now, um, I think what com- what's really something that we have to do as disciples. Uh, We have to constantly diagnose ourselves. We have to reflect. And, you know, just as the psalmist says, you know, search my heart and see if there's any grievous ways within me. That is the prayers that we have to pray. And for this application, um, you know, we actually have to take some time and um, provide a space to just sit back and to reflect what are the ways and how we can just prioritize ourselves over Jesus. And church, let me tell you, as you know, as I know as well, um, we are so subtly selfish. Um, Like for me personally, it's so easy to disguise my selfish motives as something that's godly. Pastors, we're so good at this, right? Um, we, We have the arguments. We have the debates in line. And we can totally deceive ourselves into thinking, oh, this thing that we're doing or this way and how we're spending our money is for the kingdom, is for God's glory. But deep down inside, maybe it's rooted for a selfish cause. And so for me personally, what I have to do is take time to sit at God's feet with his word in prayer and to discern, God, what are the ways and how I am vulnerable into prioritizing things that really not, are not about you. Um, church, I encourage you to take some time to do that this week. Um, really pray and ask God to reveal the ways and how uh, we can do this. And, you know, maybe God will review, uh, uh, reveal um, the ways and how uh, we mismanage our time, maybe our, our money, maybe in our relationships. Um, pray for that. But here's the second thing. Pray for the interest of others. Pray for the interest of others. A lot of times, I find myself guilty uh, in doing this. Um, it's very easy to just pray about yourself. And, you know, it's not bad, right? Even Paul, he says, don't only look out for your own self-interest, but look out for the interest of others. So it's not bad to um, care about self-interest. The issue is when your self-interest becomes God, right? When, where your self-interest becomes the most important thing in life. Now, In this application and praying for the the interest of others, um, there's so many things we can do as a church. Um, Number one, pray for your opponents. Pray for people who you disagree with. Pray for those who hurt you. Pray for those who annoy you. Pray for those who you can't stand. And pray for their well-being. Number two, pray for your family. And I know we, we do this regularly, but pray for your family. Pray for their salvation if they're not saved. Pray for your work, your coworkers. Pray for your friends, right? The people that God has um, surrounded um, you in your life. So those are the two applications I want to leave you with. Um, Pray for God to reveal the ways and how uh, we're prone to prioritizing ourselves over the kingdom. Number two, pray for the interests of others. Now, I'm not going to beat around the bush. This is hard. Right to undo the learning that we have received from the world in living for ourselves and pursuing self-interest and being selfish, it's difficult. And a lot of times I feel like, I personally, I, I fail at this. And um, it's a struggle to us, isn't it? Right? Um, I don't know if you feel this way, but there's many times in my own Christian walk where I, I honestly, like, I feel like a failure. You know, I feel like, Um, extremely insecure, and especially as a pastor, it's kind of like I measure myself to the standard. Like, am I being a faithful disciple of Christ? Or am I actually, like, giving to those in need? Am I actually on mission? Am I doing these things? And a lot of times, I feel like imposter syndrome, right? It's a a real thing. One of the greatest movies I've seen um, is the movie Mulan not the real live-action one, because I haven't seen that yet, and I hear it's pretty bad, but the original Disney one, okay? And Disney, right, they're known to produce banger after banger when it comes to, like, their soundtrack and their music, and Reflection, I feel like that's one of the greatest songs that Disney has ever uh, came up with. And I'm just going to read the the chorus for us, okay? It's a little cheesy, but there's a point that I'm trying to make, so bear with me, all right? So... Uh, Mulan sings, uh, "Who is that girl I see, staring straight back at me? Right, she's looking at her reflection through the the tomb or through the pond. Why is my reflection someone I don't know? Must I pretend that I'm someone else for all time? When will my reflection show who I am inside?" This is crazy because I feel like what well, this was. This movie was made like decades ago, um, but. I feel like this is a timeless struggle um, that we go through, right? Insecurity is a timeless struggle. And this is really at the heart of Mulan's angst. Her issue is this. She believes that she is not the perfect daughter. She believes that, man, I bring my family, especially my my father, shame. And maybe some of us, Um, I don't know what you feel about this, but maybe some of us can actually relate to what Mulan is feeling, her angst, especially as Christians. Maybe some of us, we feel, man, I don't think I live up to the calling that God the Father has given to me. I don't think I'm living up to the call of parenting. I feel like I'm failing my children. I feel like I'm, I'm barely managing to stay above water. I feel like I'm failing in in showing Christ and being loving to my spouse. I feel like I'm failing at my work and the responsibilities that God has called me to do. I feel like that I'm failing at even my sins and me trying to walk in sanctification. And a lot of times in our Christian faith, let me say, it's normal to have these feelings of failure, self-doubt, Insecurity. And maybe some of you are feeling this even right now in this season, which is very difficult for many of us. And, you know, there's a scene, right, uh, at Mulan's home where the ancestors, right, they're like spiritual cartoon figures, they're watching Mulan, and they're, you know what they're saying? They're thinking shame. They're complaining to each other, saying, dude, follow Mulan, she's going to bring us dishonor to all of us. But when God looks at you. When God looks at us, God is never thinking you are shameful. God is never thinking you bring this honor to my name. When God sees you staring at your reflection, you know what he says to you? He says, you reflect me. You reflect me not on the basis of of what you've accomplished, not on the basis of what you're trying to do, not on the basis of your, your failures or your successes, but by very nature and you being made my own image, you reflect me and therefore you are beautiful. The great thing about the gospel is that our identity is not based on what we're able to accomplish or how we fail in life the great thing about the gospel is that we don't have to live up to these certain expectations or standards. Our identity is not found in that. But rather, our identity is found and is cemented in not what we do, but who we are in Christ, in faith. And so church, my encouragement is this. It's hard to be, you know, selfless. It's hard to follow Jesus. And a lot of times we're going to find failure along the way, won't we? A lot of times we're going to slip and stumble. But the gospel always reminds us that failure is not our identity. Um, but really being in Christ, being sons and daughters of the God of the universe, we reflect his beauty. We reflect his image. And so my encouragement to you, church, is you reflect God, even in your failures. Church, it's tumultuous times we're living in. Um, things are very difficult for a lot of us. Um, but I do want to encourage you um, You know, let's fight together to live lives of selflessness. You know, let's follow the examples that Scripture has clearly laid out to us through the work and the life of um, not only Jesus, but Paul, the work and the life of Timothy and Epaphroditus. And especially even when we face failure, um, my encouragement is not to give up but to look to the cross where your identity is clearly put on display, that in Christ Um, you are accepted and loved and forgiven. Let's pray together. God, we want to thank you so much for your word. Um, We want to thank you so much for your faithfulness. Um, And God, we want to thank you so much for um, your faithful servants, Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus. And um, really, this passage, even though there is an explicit teaching, um, God, we see great godly examples in how to mirror you. And I pray that Our desire would really be to follow in in that, to follow in humility, to follow and to be in step with um, selfless giving. And I pray, God, that um, when we experience hiccups, when we experience failures, um, God, when we sin and when we fall short, um, help us, God, to not continue in the downward path of guilt and shame, Um, but God, I pray that you would lead us to grace and mercy you would help us to remember and um, to really even have confidence in the blood of Christ that we are accepted, we are redeemed, we are loved, we are known. Thank you, God, for the gospel. Thank you so much for um, the grace that you constantly show us. And I pray, God, that you would really utilize especially our church um, to be selfless Uh, to give, um, to seek justice, to provide for the vulnerable, especially the people that you place in our lives. Thank you, God. We give you all the glory, and we pray this in Jesus' name.